One of the things I love about watching great actors is how they reinvent themselves in every role. Late last year, just a few weeks apart, I saw two plays at the National Theatre here in London. One was set in 1930s Harlem and featured a costume designer who treated even the smallest apartment like his stage. Another centred on Othello, Shakespeare's tragic hero lost in a viciously racist world. If I hadn't known that the same actor was playing both, I wouldn't have believed it. Every movement, every gesture, every atom of their bodies seemed so different. But Giles Torreira, our guest today on Why Dance Matters, is no ordinary actor. Othello has been broadcast to international cinemas and he's up for an Olivier Award for that Harlem designer in Blues for an Alabama Sky. But he also performs musicals, creating the key role of Aaron Burr in the UK premiere of the all-conquering Hamilton. And he writes songs and his play... The Meaning of Zong is about to make its London debut. Giles' book, Hamilton and Me, details his painstaking approach to his work. He's an exceptionally thoughtful artist, which is why we were thrilled that he could join us on the Royal Academy of Dance podcast. He knows better than most how character takes physical shape, and how it communicates to an audience. How does it feel for so many different bodies to filter through his own? I'm David Jays, and today we're at the Barbican in London, where the meaning of Zong will soon take the stage. I'm ready to ask Giles why dance matters. Giles, welcome to Why Dance Matters. It's just such a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And you, Giles Torreira, people talk about triple threat performers who do the acting and do the singing and do the dancing. You also do the writing, so you are quadruple (laughs) threat. Where does dance sit in that list? Mm, I always wanted to be a dancer. Really? I always wanted to be a dancer. My favourite people when I was growing up were Sammy Davis Jr., Michael Jackson, Fred Astaire. That's what I wanted to be. Um, So very elegant, stylish, classy, classy dancer. Well, people that, you know, I was a kid, so you see people, That's you see Michael Jackson. And then later on, like, what I like about Charlie Chaplin is he's a dancer. Charlie Chaplin is one of my heroes and his movies is a silent movie star. So his work is dance in the sense that he's using his body to tell a story. And that's what I love. So for me, I'm like, I always wish I could, could dance better than I can. <laughs> I, there's nothing to me. It's like I remember seeing Matthew Bourne's Swan Lake. Oh, yeah. You know, it's one of the times it came back into town. It's been around. I came to it quite late. It was at the Dominion. And I remember leaving that theatre convinced that I'd heard every word. It was so clear. The storytelling was so clear. 
I was like, no, but they were speaking. Yeah. Because I can tell you what they were saying and what they were feeling and what they were thinking and who said what. Yeah. And there was not one word spoken. And to me, dance has that above everything else, is that you can tell a story with just your, but it's no words, there's no singing, there's no melodies. To me, dancing and movement, storytelling through movement is very important. But I think, you know, I like to sort of privately think that the kind of storytelling tradition that I'm really interested in is one where movement and dance and spoken word and music are all one thing. It was really the same thing. So whether you're talking about, you know, thousand-year-old history in in Africa or the Mediterranean or the Middle East or wherever it happens, or the Far East, Japan, I'm really interested in storytelling where movement is as important as language, words, music. For me, it's really, it's all part of the same thing. And were there dance classes as a kid? Were you that? <laughs> that no. little boy <laughs> I was always dancing but I didn't go to dance class I went to music I went to piano lessons my mum sent me to piano lessons I think because she always wanted to be a piano player she always wanted to play piano but she was from a massive family in Barbados and she was the seventh of eight so there were no piano lessons <laughs> well, by no the time lessons. it got to that point <laughs> so yeah so for me she was like ah, he's, he's interested in music so I got some piano lessons but no dance right. lessons but I was always dancing yeah. we danced a lot in our family yeah And whizzing forward Mm. to Hamilton, because I guess that is... People don't necessarily think of it as a dance show because people think about the lyrics and just the concept of it all and the audacity. But it is a show that is in constant movement, isn't it? Yeah, when people see it, because I think maybe because we we hear it, everyone's got the cast recording, you hear it so much. Now it's different because there's the movie out. But at the time when I was in it, it was on on Broadway and that was it. So you heard it. Lots of people have heard it. And there's lots of solo songs in it. And there's some ensemble singing. But I had no idea the extent to which, as you say, everyone is dancing at all points, all the time. Yeah. Even if they're not singing, people are on stage. And movement is a huge part of it. So for me, I think it's as much about dance as it is about hip-hop or the songs which to me blew me away absolutely blew me away because i love it and there's some people on that stage who what they our choreographer was andy blankenbuehler and he picked brilliant people with very different disciplines and everyone got to shine at their little thing one of my friends leslie he's brilliant at street dance hip-hop stuff you see him do that another one of my friends jack butterworth he's much more of a kind of classical trained although he can do everything. So you see that side of him. So everyone can kind of get a moment to sort of show their thing. I was always in awe of that. I was in awe of that. I mean, I didn't get, I didn't dance a lot in that show. (laughs) (laughs) Except one of the the most memorable of, in a show full of memorable numbers is the room where it happened. And in your book, Hamilton and Me, you describe the frustration of the first rehearsals of that very complex, very intricate number where, yeah. again, everyone is involved doing lots of different stuff. Yeah. I'm wondering, is it part of the challenge in a show like that, the fact that you're wanting it to make the performance individual to yourself, but there's also a template yeah. that you have to, yeah. you have to find your way through? Yeah. 
That's really good because dance is about absolute specificity. If your index finger is not doing this particular shape at that particular specific beat, then it's wrong. It's not like in a play where you can sort of arm and R and sort of move around the sentence. And no, music, you have to hit that note or not. Dance, you have to hit that step or not. Not only do you have to hit it, but you have to hit it with the right intention. For me, when Andy would talk about choreography in terms of intention all the time, I could really understand that. I haven't had a dance training, but when he's talking about what the intention is behind this move, what you're trying to do to another character, for me, that's then what fills a move to the ends of your fingertips, to the end of your fingers or the end of your toes. So on one level, it was very encouraged that we fill it with our own shades and colours and intentions and feelings and thoughts. At the same time, there is a grid on the stage and it starts at zero in the middle of the front of the stage and then works out either side, left to right, two, four, six, all the way up to the wings. Everything is choreographed on that grid. And if you are not on two when you are supposed to be on two, <laughs> you're not, you're somewhat, you know, specifically to begin with, I was like, wow, this is really hard. But then I was like, the show is so complicated. And unless you are in the right place at the right time, not only will the, the choreography be wrong, the storytelling be wrong, but you're going to probably knock someone out. <laughs> so people are doing lifts and moves and spins and turns and they're on the floor and they're doing jumps and you have to be specific. So for me, again, then when I go back to plays, it's always good to have been in shows because you need to be specific. And if you're doing a, a straight play, you be specific with that thought, be specific with that emotion and the discipline of dance. I, I really value the creative team that did Hamilton were really, really good about going, okay, this has happened before. Now we're going to refine it again and right. you're going to find it. We're going to find it for you guys who are doing it now. So I always felt quite a lot of freedom because, and you'll know this because it's what you do, but there was an atmosphere in Hamilton the whole time of just what I've been talking about of absolute hard work, absolute specificity. You come in first thing in the morning, you warm up for half an hour, then you warm up singing for half an hour, then you go into the whole thing, then you work that. Then in lunchtime, I'd go and be practicing in the corner somewhere, rocking, trying to learn what the thing was coming after lunch. And then after work, you know, you'd go over stuff and you'd go over stuff again. So at the same time, there was always an atmosphere of hard work and specificity. So that was a given. That was just always there. So within that, you could then also have your own thoughts about things. And also, this is this particular actor playing this particular part. Again, it's that thing of like, you know, you spend time on your own preparing for a role. And then when you get in front of other people, other storytellers, other dancers, other actors, it's completely different. It lifts again. And the dancing that I did do in that show, I loved. It's really hard. But I was like, I want to be good at this. I want to get it. So, And yeah. at the same time, you were going on an interior voyage into that incredibly complex character Arumber, mm. who kicks off the show yeah. <laughs> and and is in lots of ways the eyes through which we see the story yeah. as well as the person who tragically shapes that story yeah and in some ways i guess quite a relatable character because most of us are not heroes most of us are people who don't quite fulfill our ambitions or live our dreams yes. or who sense them just out of reach yes. so he was both in some senses the villain of that story but also the most obvious point of contact for the audience yeah I guess so for me I felt definitely what you just said because 
in acting, we do a lot of work on what the character's intention is, or what the character's objective is, rather. What does this character want to achieve? And that whole Stanislavski idea of what is it? Well, you're coming to this room or you come into this situation, you walk into this story, what is the character trying to achieve? And actually, over the years, I've thought that that is true. But for a lot of people, we often don't know what it is that we want in life. We don't necessarily have, if you're Richard III, you want the crown. That's what you want. And that's easy to see and you're going to get it. You ask the average person on the train or the bus what they want in life. They say, well, I, I don't know. Well, maybe I want to be happy or want my family. Or You don't necessarily know what you want, I feel. I certainly felt that. But what I definitely feel is what I don't want to happen. The thing that I, what I do not want in life is for this to happen, X, Y, Z. And usually that's something to do with failure or not making your family proud or usually failing at stuff and I think with Aaron Burr what I noticed was I kind of filled in lots of blanks about what I, I felt his life was from historical context and he had a lot to live up to his father was a very prominent figure and we're at a point in America where Everyone, all of those founding fathers are jostling and they're very aware that they're jostling for this new nation. There's a new idea and you can feel the ambition that they've all got. We're going to, you know, we're going to do this and I'm going to be the top dog. Okay, it has to be Washington first, but Washington's not going to be around forever. Then, okay, might be Jefferson. F. I'm, maybe I'm going to be after him. That whole political ambition is very there and Aaron Burr is very much involved in that and also on a personal level I was like this is someone who who knows what he doesn't want to happen and to me I think that fuels a lot of what our decisions are if you go out on a date what drives a lot of your choices is not wanting to look like an idiot is not wanting this person to think that you're stupid or unattractive or dumb or bigoted or whatever happens to be so a lot of our choices are made on what you don't want to happen so for me, that's much more active, actually. It's more of an active thing because it's something which can apply to everything. So for me, Aaron Burr was very aware of what he didn't want to happen, which you are in the situation where you go, okay, what if that thing happens? <laughs> what if the thing he does not want to happen and wants to avoid more than anything else happens? And I think that was, to me, the way I looked at that part is that if this is someone who is very aware of wanting to be able to achieve, not wanting to fail, not wanting to be seen as failing, not wanting to be rejected, and then what if that happens? It was a really interesting way of looking at him. And then, of course, there's movement in that. Yeah. There's movement in that. One of my favourite moments in the show was exactly that, when he finds out that Jefferson has endorsed Hamilton over him in the presidential election. It's Burr is downstage centre and it's all happening behind him, that Jefferson and, and Madison are talking about that, and Hamilton's talking about that, and Burge is just hearing and receiving this, then he has to move stage left and stand by a box. And that's basically what he has to do. And for me, when I saw the show, I was like, that's a moment. What Something's happening in that moment physically. And also, I notice he turns, as he moves stage left and goes and stands by the box, he turns his back towards the audience. And that's always really juicy stuff when... I, mean, I, remember, I remember when I saw it. I've never told anyone this. When I saw it in New York, I saw it in New York because I was auditioning there. I wasn't going to be in London when they were auditioning. So I saw it way ahead of time. I remember that moment because emotionally it's such a packed moment where 
he thinks he's going to get what he wants. He thinks he's going to become the president, and he doesn't. And it's Hamilton that ensures that he doesn't get it. So the whole play has happened, the whole journey that they've been on together, and then this kind of betrayal, this abandonment, this rejection that comes from Hamilton. And he moves from centre stage and goes stage left. And there's a box there. And I thought... You, you you steady yourself on that box. To me, when I saw that, I thought that there's a huge green crate there. <laughs> and that was the one thing that I thought, and at that point when I saw it, I was just about to audition for it. So I wasn't even auditioning for it yet, but that's the one image that stuck in my mind of what you could do physically to tell a story about what's going on in that person when there are no words. So for me, that kind of stuff is what I really, that love. Last autumn, I saw two amazing performances that you gave absolutely on each other's heels that could not have been physically, vocally more different. Blues from Alabama Sky, which is set in Harlem in the 30s, and then a really harsh, a really unflinching production of Othello. And in one, you're Othello. In the other, you're a fashion designer, much more comfortable in his skin than Othello is. A self-described in- notorious homosexual is how he uh, describes himself. <laughs> why I wanted to play that part. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the, the context and the worlds couldn't be more different. And it felt, watching them, as if absolutely every atom of your body was different because they moved, so they just filled the space in such different ways. And you were, I guess, performing blues while rehearsing yes. Othello, yeah. you were carrying those two people in your body. How, yeah. how was all of that? It was mad in one way, but thrilling in another. And actually, the way I looked at it is that one fed the other. So we were rehearsing Othello. We rehearsed for seven weeks, and six of those weeks we were performing blues. So we basically opened blues and then started Othello at the same time. So it was useful, actually, to have Othello and trying to find what that is and that journey is and that story is. And then at the end of the day, be able to kind of wipe that clean in a way and go and end the day with the energy of blues, which was a very positive, in terms of just the energy of it, the way the story is told, it's funny, even though there's sort of tragic elements to it. The, the character that I played, Guy, we spent the whole play wanting to go to Paris, and he got to go to Paris at the end. One helped the other, in a way. But it was tiring. It was really tiring, but it was great. But, you know, physically, again, this is why I like being on, on this show, because, to me, the physical elements of storytelling are the most rewarding, or at least the, the foundation. That's the beginning for me. What's happening physically? Don't take for granted that you're just going to sit there and talk. There's a whole story that can be told by a million and one physical moments or interactions. And so there's a great opportunity to do that in Othello, obviously. And Guy Jacobs, I'm playing in blues, a costume designer in Harlem in the 1930s. So for me, there's a huge amount that could be told physically. 
I just love watching your shoulders as you talk about those two characters. You, when you're talking about Othello, you're just immediately more right. Marshall. And then right. when you're talking about Guy, right. there's a flow, there's a ripple. Yeah. Well, he's, well, interestingly, both men have kind of created versions of themselves in order to be able to navigate the world that they're in. So it was fun to be able to say, with Guy, I was like, I love as I say, physical actors. So it was very clear for me. The play was written by a brilliant African-American playwright called Pearl Clegg. And I could see the influences of Tennessee Williams in her writing and lots of different playwrights. Or even things like, in terms of my character, like Oscar Wilde or Noel Coward or even back further than that, like the fops from Restoration Comedy. So for me, it was about like kind of identifying people who... I could be inspired by. So I was like, oh, this moment is like Elizabeth Taylor in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. That moment is like Julie Walters. That moment is like Angela Lansbury (laughs) in whatever it might be. (laughs) All the icons. All the icons. (laughs) This moment is like James Baldwin. You can't always do that with plays. But for me, there was, it was very kind of clear connection between this kind of character and other kind or maggie smith the way maggie smith uses her arms and her wrists <laughs> and her twitches and things oh no, no or a cigarette the yeah. first thing i knew i was like okay he's gonna have to have a cigarette on the go all the time yes he yeah, has yeah, a cigarette yeah. he's always talking about popping a bottle of champagne and also he's a he's a costume designer so he works at his sewing machine all the time so what is that world what does that do to you physically and then othello you know othello's a soldier Othello is a general of the Venetian army. What does that immediately do to you? I'm always looking for like the, the, the physical clues that will help you as a character. Even something like in Hamilton, going back to Hamilton, the costumes that you wear, Paul Taswell, the costume, our brilliant costume designer. It's so detailed as oh, well, aren't they? Every fibre is everything. telling Even things you don't see. Yeah. You, you look into the inside pockets and you think, the, the audience aren't ever going to see that detail, immaculate detail. But you're talking about 18th century clothes and therefore you stand up in a certain way, you sit in a certain way. So by the time we left the rehearsal room to go into performance and you put the costumes on, that's an added component of who Aaron Burr might be. So all those things inform storytelling so in a way that's all dance as far as i'm concerned and you're a beautiful speaker of shakespeare and you've done your i've Thank seen you. your wonderful documentary yeah. uh, muse of fire which is about yeah. shakespeare performance as a physical act what is that like that to have that verse kind of running through your body the, that's exactly you've hit it on the head because the verse has to run through your body it has to be in, in the entirety of your body if you see the great Shakespearean performers, whether it's Judy Dench or whether it's James L. Jones, who we spoke to in that, or whether it's Mark Rylance, they are speaking, the words vibrate through them. The breath that you need comes from within you and moves out. So in the same way that you would look at a piece of choreography and say that has to emanate from you, the words also have to. And if they don't, then it can be sort of a bit cut off and headbound, and then you're into the territory where it's like, well, what's the person talking about? Whereas if you let that language affect you and come from you, I think that's the goal. With it's tricky. It comes from, I think, in, in observing other people, it comes from doing it lots. The more you do it, the more it seeps into your body. You watch Judy Dench do it, you hear Judy Dench, you think, well... 
it's almost like I remember seeing her do Titania a few years back, and you thought, well, she's just she's making this up. She's writing it in the moment of expressing. There's no there's no play. She's not learned lines. She's just expressing. This is coming from her. The thoughts and the emotions, the feelings, all, it's all one thing and coming from her. So you never don't understand what she's talking about, because also, I like to go to if I'm on tour. I like to go to countries where, and see theatre where it's not, English is not the language. So I remember when I was in Japan and I was in China and going to the Kabuki Theatre in Japan where there are no subtitles, there's no subtitles, you're just listening to, to a brilliant production spoken in Japanese and going, how much can I understand from what is being physically, I can't understand what's being said, but there's a physical life which is happening which tells me a lot between these two characters. And I think that's, if any good actors is working on that level, if you see Judy Dent or Mike Rylance or James Earl Jones or whoever it might be, they're working on that level. So that's the goal. Yeah. It's hard, but this is hard what we do. Storytelling is, is tricky, but it's work effort pays off. We're speaking in the Barbican Centre, we where in a few weeks' time, your play, The Meaning of Zong, is going to be on the stage. Yeah. Which is a play about one of the atrocities of the slave trade, hmm. and which came to light because of a court case, not a murder trial, not a human rights abuse trial, but an insurance squabble, yes. which brought to light terrible deaths on mm. a slave ship. How did you come to that story? Why did you want to bring that to the stage? I came to the story, I overheard someone talking about it. I was having um, a sort of party and I was running around sort of looking after, you know, checking in on people. And I passed a friend of mine who was talking about this slave ship. I heard them say the slave ship where they threw the Africans into the sea to claim the insurance. That's all I heard. So I did exactly what you've just done. My jaw dropped. And, and I thought, well, what is that? What is that? I don't, I need to know more about that. And that's all I knew. And so I went Googling and there was this story, this true story of this event that happened in 1781. And there was a trial following it in 1783. And so the more I started to find out about it, it was, it's an extraordinary story because the people involved in it, um, yes, on one level it deals with an atrocity which takes place on board a slave ship, but also it's about two people here in London, three people here in London, who try and do something about this. They hear this story and they know that it sort of epitomises the evils of the slave trade. And at that point, Britain is absolutely built and thriving off the slave trade. And so the heroes in our story try and do something about it. And that's true. They went into the, to Westminster Hall and they made a transcript of the trial and they tried to take this story out to the public in the events themselves, in the massacre itself. We know from the transcript of the court hearing that the first mate of the ship says that one of the Africans who was thrown into the sea managed to, to grab hold of a rope that was hanging from the ship and they're clung on and managed to pull themselves back up onto the ship. So immediately I thought, that's, I want to know about that person. I want to know that person's story. 
who found themselves in the most extreme position that you can find yourself as a human being. Death one way at the end of your rope, death the other way. If you go up, you die. If you go down, you die. What are you going to do? And what does that, how does that person make that choice? So I wanted to find out about that person. And also we hear in the transcript that one of the Africans spoke English and spoke on behalf of the rest of the Africans to the crew to try and stop them from carrying out these murders. So again, I wanted to find out who that person was. So that really was the beginning of it. These two sets of people, one set in London who hear about this event and try and do something about it, and the other on the ship itself, experiencing the events, trying to survive, trying to do something about it. So for me, yes, it's about human rights, but it's also about the strength of human will to survive and to achieve and to to rise up and to affect positive change you could just be one person and you can actively affect positive change you know i think a lot of the big turning points in history in terms of social change have come about usually because one person and then maybe others catch up along the way and then it builds and builds and builds but when we are looking at stories now in 2023 in our headlines that are about black and brown people on boats and what their basic human rights are and how we treat them, how we respond to them, how we ignore them. I think it, it's a story which is it could be set now. To me, it was really, really important to tell it. Part of the way you tell it, which is inherently theatrical, is that it depends on a sense of radical empathy. Yes. In a way, that's how, yeah, true. That's how the trial comes to reach its conclusion but that's also how we in the audience get to experience it as well yeah because again in theatre you go I think it's really interesting when you present the audience with situations as characters in in such a way that then that audience can go oh what would I do in that situation so the play is filled I've tried to bring out as much of those situations as possible whether it's the people who are on the ship or whether it's uh, Olaud Equiano who's the character that I play who's the one who hears about this incident and then goes to Granville Sharp who happens to be at the time the kind of one-man abolitionist movement he's the one that people go to if they've been enslaved and they are trying to get their freedom it's Granville Sharp that you go to this white man and the two of these people together they enlist a shorthand writer and the three of them try and so it, it was to me interesting going okay you have one of the three heroes in the story you've got one person who's experienced enslavement Allowed Equiano. You have another Granville Sharp who has spent them, has never experienced enslavement, but has spent 20 odd years fighting it and dealing with people who have experienced it. And then you have this shorthand writer who's, who's neither of those things, who's coming to it completely innocently. And hopefully the audience will be able to kind of connect with one of those three characters. You have a lot of black people who are aware of this story here now in 2023. You have a lot of white people who are aware of it but in a kind of removed way or a detached way or in a theoretical way. And then you have people who know nothing about it at all. So all that said, the subject matter is really one of the sort of darker moments in, in our history. At the same time, as I say, we celebrate the people who who went on this journey and stepped out on a limb against popular opinion. It's like this, the British slave trade is so valuable to the British economy. Do not even think about touching it. They're completely out there. No one wants to know. They go around London. They go to the, to the papers. They go to the church. 
they go to um, Parliament, they go to the royal family. No one wants to know, and they're kind of completely up against it. And yet they manage to do it. Within 10 years, slavery is being abolished. And the people on that ship, you know, someone someone who managed to pull themselves up back on a rope. We don't know what happened to that person, but I like to think that that person lived to be 100 you know, that kind of spirit, that kind of tenacity is one which I envisage that person telling their great-great-grandchildren about how they arrived in the Caribbean, how they arrived in Jamaica. We have a lot of music, we have a lot of dance in the show. And also, because we've been talking mostly in this conversation about you necessarily quite single-mindedly thinking about your character in a particular show. But of course, as the writer, you're having to carry all these characters it's a big cast of, yeah. of people uh, different nationalities yeah. different classes different everything yeah what's it like to have all of those journeys going on in your imagination it's good because they existed these are real people yeah. every single person in the play is a real person they actually existed so it was actually kind of doing justice to that and trying to really bring them out and let them speak as opposed to me having to sort of create and make up people and their journeys and their stories and stuff so it's been a really beautiful experience to try and I like research I like digging around and trying to find clues within what we do have to be able to flesh out who that person might be what they've said what they did where they were what they wrote because a lot of the people in the story Granville Sharp wrote his his own story Alaud Equiano famously wrote his own story and published it Judge Mansfield who's the judge who presides over the whole thing presided over many 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 important um, decisions and cases during that time and the transcript itself was written down I, I just used as much of that as I possibly could so and then we've got a brilliant cast of actors so I, I always left space that within in the same way that you know in Hamilton we were encouraged to kind of bring ourselves to the into the room and kind of you know have our own thoughts and feelings about what the characters were so we did the same with this play the meaning of zong we've got an amazing group of of performers and again everyone sings everyone moves and everyone acts we're all involved so it's been a really really rewarding experience Your Hamilton book ends, I was rereading this last chapter on the train coming in and getting a bit teary, which was a bit much first thing in the morning. But there is this beautiful performance that you describe where you and some of your fellow cast members really want to organise a special performance for young people who might otherwise not be able to access a big West End show. And so there's a special matinee and mm. the theatre is packed and you describe the emotion of that event. Yeah. Thinking back on it now, what, what was that like? It was probably my favourite performance we ever did because it was so different to everything that the, the show was. The show was always incredible all the way through. I did it for a year. But that show, as you say, with young people who were invested in it in a different way, they're at a different point in their lives. So they're really interested in 
the sons of liberty, the young revolutionaries, you kind of young, scrappy and hungry and have got something to say. They really responded to that. And also, primarily, I guess, they also responded to what I responded to when I saw it in New York, which is people who looked like them up on that stage. And for us, it was really powerful because we also, for the most full time in our run, could look on down into the auditorium and see people who look like us fully. And it hadn't happened to that extent before. So it was a really powerful experience that kind of was a cyclical thing where this energy would come from them and then we would be very moved and emotional about what we were doing and we would hear different things in what we were saying and do different things in, what, in, in the way that we were telling a story that then they responded to and we responded to. So it was very, 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 very powerful. They did lots of that stuff in, in New York when the show started. We were like, we were dying to do stuff like that here yeah. because you have something like Hamilton where it's got this massive potential to reach all kinds of people. So do it, do that. Let's do that. Let's reach people that we've not we've not reached before so there were lots of amazing experiences in that year and that was pretty high up there Giles I am going to let you go I promise though I would very happily just <laughs> shake great. stories it's, out of you because every, everyone is a gem but um it's and it's lovely that this kind of thread of talking about achieving your potential working out what your dreams are and how you can fulfill them has kind of filtered through a lot of what we've spoken about so taking you back to the proto Sammy Davis Jr Michael Jackson Fred Astaire there is still time <laughs> leads me to the final question which is why does dance matter to you dance matters to me because on a fundamental level it's there before language we communicate so much with how we are physically if you think about your train journey on the way to work there's so much so much being told physically that's dance that's all dances and it's it's there before language before you can speak before you can write you are communicating through movement it's just a very simple fundamental of, of the human experience when i see it done well in performance it can tell me as much as a monologue or an entire song to see someone move to see charlie chaplin meet a young or see a young lady for the first time and how that affects his body and how he can communicate how he's really attracted to this person but he's embarrassed because he's a tramp and he has no money and she's going to reject him but he's got to try so what does he do happen to do he sees a flower seller at that point and he goes all of that happens without language, and yet there's a huge amount to be communicated. And also, just on a basic human level, it's like, if you want to connect to who you are, dance. All of our cultures around the world dance. You dance to, to convene with the spirits. On a fundamental level, there's a basic need for human beings to dance. So for me, it's always been there, and hopefully it always will be. Charles, that's so beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Giles said he could happily talk about creating characters all day, and I could happily listen. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Tell us what you think. I'm at Mr. David Jays on Twitter, and the RAD is at RAD Headquarters, and you can explore its work via our show notes. There, you can also learn about Giles' book on Hamilton and the meaning of Zong at the Barbican. Next week, well, there's a bonus special episode of Why Dance Matters with a rather special guest, so do look out for that. And please, subscribe and like the podcast so that you're always the first to hear about a new episode. Our guest today was Giles Torreira. Why Dance Matters is made by the RAD team of Neve Carey Furness and Katie Hagen, and our artwork is by Bex Glendinning. And it's always a bonus to be in the room where it happened with our producer, Sarah Miles. I'm David Jays. Take care and see you soon.